We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 33 this morning. So please turn your Bibles there. Pray for our, we should also be praying for our pastor, lead pastor Lou. He's going to be obviously his way this morning. He's traveling to a conference. So just pray that, um, that as he meets this week with other pastors from around the country, uh, he'll be encouraged. He'll be an encouragement as well. And there'll be a mutual learning from each other and that uh, our pastor Lou would experience some spiritual refreshment as well. So be praying for him this week. Um, in the meantime, you've got me this morning. So again, we'll be in Isaiah 33. So I'm glad to be here. It's been a while since I've been here in the pulpit, but I, I trust that the Lord has a work to do in all of our hearts this morning um, through His Word. So before we read through the passage, though, I want to just take a moment to just recap what's going on, because there's a lot um, to re- be reminded of. We're 33 chapters in. We're about halfway through Isaiah, and uh, there's a lot that's come in front of us. There's a lot that's going to be in front of us that, that before us, and there's a lot that's going to be coming after this. But just to see and I get an idea of where we are contextually before we open the, the word here this morning is um, just remember that Judah is now um, the southern kingdom of, Ju- of Judah is now being attacked by the Assyrian army. Remember that um, rather than being a single unified people, God's people had been um, separated into two different kingdoms: as northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Northern kingdom Israel has now been wiped out. Uh, they're now in a captivity uh, in Assyria, and Assyria is now leveling their forces against the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, and they've already captured many, many of the cities around Jerusalem, which is uh, the capital of Judah. And uh, they're setting their, their sights on defeating this last, this last big um, uh, this, this last big piece of the puzzle of Judah, which is Jerusalem, which ironically means city of peace, but there's no peace going on in Jerusalem in the walls right now. Uh, they saw what happened to their kingsmen above in the northern kingdom. What's happening to them now, they're now, of course, riddled with fear and anxiety and angst and desperation. Up to this point, they've tried to align themselves with other nations around them, but uh, all of those alliances have proved, proved to be fruitless and worthless. And God is using the prophet Isaiah now to warn his people uh, that they're going to receive judgment because they have not trusted in their warrior king, the Lord, the, the Lord of hosts, a warrior God. But instead they've tried to align themselves with these other kingdoms. Uh, and now this is, we're at this place now where Judah is facing this watershed moment. Are they going to continue to try to do things on their own? Or are they going to embrace their God again. They're going to go back to their Lord, return to Him and His wisdom and His might. Hezekiah is the king at this time in Judah, and he was a very good king. In fact, the Scripture says he was the best king that Judah had before and would have after. There's no better king in Judah than Hezekiah, and he helped bring the people back to God by destroying the idols. And I think in this chapter, we're finally seeing because of, of that and because of the desperation they're in, they're finally turning toward repentance. God's people are, are finally transitioning from their rebellion back to repentance and turning to their God. It's a reminder to us today that God uses judgment to direct His people to Himself. It's for their good. God used these surrounding nations as, as the kind of a rod of discipline for Judah, a rod of correction and to purge them of their idols and to turn them to Himself, hopefully um, to keep them from self-destruction the idols would bring them to. And this chapter reminds us that God is still for His people. Amen? God loves His people. And He's disciplining them for their good. And and He's using this rod of correction for their good and for His glory. And one day, 
this rod of correction won't be necessary any longer, right? Because we'll be completely sanctified, we'll be completely cleansed of sin, and we'll be fully prepared to dwell with our God, our holy God. And all the enemies that had once threatened God's people, in this, in this context, the Assyrians or those that would come after them, um, Babylon, um, and all those that, that invaded Israel, the northern kingdom, that all these, these enemies, but not only their enemies, but also the enemies that we deal with, that, that we wrestle against today, that are not of flesh and blood, but are the demonic powers of darkness and spiritual forces. All of these enemies will one day be finally destroyed by King Jesus, and He returns in all of His glory. So with that, let's, let's turn to the Scripture this morning that are able to make us wise for salvation and, and faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to look through it in three, in three parts. I'm going to read just the first six verses to start, and that's going to give us um, an idea of what Judah's desperate plea was. And then we're going to turn to God's mighty decree in verses um, 12, 7 through 12, and then finally we'll wrap things up with the climax of this chapter in verses 13 through 24. We'll see the king's majestic beauty. So let's first look at verses 1 through 6. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed. You traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. When you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered. And your spoil is gathered as a caterpillar gathers, as locusts leap it is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted, for He dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and He will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. So we see here the the opening of of this chapter, there's this... God is making this loud exclamation, ah, or woe is another way of, of, of uh, communicating what's going on. And he's done this five times up to this point. So this is the sixth and final woe or ah that God exclaims and proclaims. Uh, and each of those times in, in chapters 28, twice in 29, and one in 30 and 31, all of them have been directed toward God's people. And he's doing it to, to shake them, to, to wake them up from the days that they're in. I had a professor in college who used to kind of wake us up when we were in a little bit of a stupor. He would say, wake up and smell the pizza. <laughs> and that would be his way of trying to get our attention. And obviously it made us laugh as well. So, um, but this obviously, what God's saying, is a, is a much more serious exclamation. Much more uh, serious shaking and rattling to get a, the attention of his people. Because with it, is typically, if you go look back at each of those, they all accompanied his judgment that came right after, right after it. And it was this announcement that, that this righteous fury that was brought on by their sins was now going to come down, was going to touch down on his people to purge them of their, of their sins. But this time, this sixth woe here is not directed toward Israel. It's not directed toward Judah, I should say. It's directed toward the enemy. It's directed toward this unnamed destroyer and traitor as he's, been, as he's addressing them. And based on what we know about what's going on in the time of Isaiah and what's going on in, in, during Hezekiah's reign, we can, we can say with pretty confidence um, here that he's referring to Assyria. 
They're the superpower that were, that were again, leveling the, the, the plains all around Jerusalem. They had already taken down the northern kingdom, now they're coming after Judah. And uh, they were a superpower at the time. That no, no, other, no other nation could stand up against this, uh, this Assyrian force. And not only were they this, this dominating force, but the Assyrian king, his name was Sennacherib, was also highly arrogant and treacherous. So that's where the destroyer and the traitor part of it comes from, this address. We'll get a closer look at this in, in, verses, in chapters 36 and 37, where they'll actually turn from their, the, of this, this prophecy to an actual description, a narrative of what's going on, which you can also see in 2 Kings chapter 18. But the Cliff Notes version of what's going on is that this, this uh, king of Assyria, Sennacherib, had promised that if, if Judah would give them some tribute, would give them a large sum of money, then he would, he would repel from, from his stations. He would, they, would, they would pull back, they would retreat. Um, and, and what happens is here is that in a weak moment, Hezekiah, the king, who was a good king, but in this moment, he, in a weak moment, he actually uh, turns from his allegiance to God and he's, he thinks that he can create this peace that they're looking for by paying tribute. Uh, and what he does is actually he strips the gold from the temple, uh, temple walls, from the, from the temple doors. And he's removing all the silver from the temple coffers. He's actually taking all of the treasures from the king's house and he's giving them over to Sennacherib thinking this will placate him. But suffice it to say, that didn't work. Um, Sennacherib was actually extorting this money uh, with, with no intention of actually pulling, pulling his, his ranks um, from the walls of Jerusalem, took the money and did not abandon his military position. And now what we're seeing here is God is calling out Assyria for the way that they have been treating his people. But there's also another voice crying out that we see, almost at the same time as God's crying out. In their desperation, Judah now is pleading to God for intervention. Now we're seeing this fundamental shift that's going on in their attitudes and their hearts and their perspective. They're finally recognizing that they need the grace of God. They're desperate for God's grace. They'd forgotten God, but now they're finally remembering the God that loves them and has saved them. And they're using God's name here, the name that He disclosed as, as His covenant name. They're using, so every time you see the, the word Lord here in all caps, it's all referring to that name, Yahweh, the covenant name of God that he had given them to use when they're referring to him. And his name alone just would have brought remembrance of all the th- ways in which God had previously, over all the course of Israel's history, had been their source of hope and deliverance and salvation. All this way, they had a, a large history of a rich history of how God had loved them, how he had first disclosed his name in the burning bush, right, to Moses, how rescuing them from slavery in Egypt, guiding and providing them through their wilderness wanderings, giving them this law to live, live by, ushering them into this, this promised land that he had told them about, and on and on it goes throughout all their history, through long lines of judges and kings and priests and prophets. God had rescued Israel. He had made this covenant with them to be their God and they to be his people. And they would be his people forever. But the problem is they had forgotten who they were. They'd forgotten who their God was. They'd forgotten their identity. 
But now by God's grace, they're coming to their senses again. Right? They're, they're recognizing that they, they had this constant need this, for God's daily strength in their lives. That, that only He was the one that could deliver them from their enemies. And we'll see that their, their faith and hope was revived because they were refocusing their, their attention on God's glory and His mission. Look at verses 5-6. through six. The Lord is exalted, for He dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and He will be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvation. Abundance of salvation actually is meaning that it's, it's, it's a plural, a plural form of salvation. There'll be abundance of salvation, lots of salvations with wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. So here Isaiah is helping lead his people in this remembrance this, of who God is, of this, this, this new revelation of God's glory or illumination of the truth of God's glory, his, his transcendence, that his, his holy otherness, he was holy above his creation and over the created world, all that he had made. And that he is infinitely much greater than the nations of the earth and all that are around all the rulers that are surrounding uh, Jerusalem from all the other nations of the earth. And when the Almighty targets a nation for judgment, although they, they try to scatter, scatter around, it says here, they, they scatter, they're not going to find any place to go. There's, there's no defense for them to hide behind. So what, what Isaiah is reminding them is that the battle, when, when, when God is battling for you, the battle is over before it's even begun. Right? All, all the wealth and spoils now just become easy pickings. Right, Isaiah illustrates this by using, in, in verse 4, this imagery of this, this ravenous uh, caterpillar, right? Who's, who munches and just constantly over, over, a, uh, um, over um, a plant until finally it's just been completely devoured. It's incessantly devouring this plant upon plant. And then also using this idea of this, this swarm of all these locusts that descend upon an entire crop and just overtake it. All this to communicate that there's really no competing against the Almighty God. He's, he's capable, capable of defeating all of His enemies. And then alongside this revelation of God's might, we also see this revelation, again, of God's sovereign ability to achieve all of His purposes. Right? And in true Isaiah fashion, he, He'll take this this pronouncement, this, this proclamation, this prophetic announcement of Judah's immediate deliverance, and, and, he, and he weaves in there this, these, these distant future uh, dreams and, and, and sights and images of the future, of the messianic kingdom. He's introducing this, this eschatological, this hope, this distant future hope all the way throughout history that he's going to expound later on in this chapter, we'll see, but, but briefly, what he's, what he's pointing out is that God will, will fulfill not just the defeat of this, this immediate enemy, but he's going to actually take care of all of the enemies that oppress God's people. And he'll finally establish and build this perfectly stable, peaceful Zion, the city for his people to live in. It's a city that we're told is, is foundation is God's justice and his righteousness where salvation is completely secured and wisdom and knowledge and truth will, will flourish. And all these qualities are inseparable from God Himself, right? In other words, all these, these qualities are, 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 are granted by God because God possesses them. They're part of His very nature to begin with. That He is 
perfectly righteous and perfectly just and all-wise and omniscient. And we see in verse 6 here that these qualities are going to be plentiful throughout Zion where the Lord is honored and worshipped. It says the fear of the Lord is, is Zion's treasure. Right? There'll, there'll be no more divided loyalties in God, for God's people in the new kingdom. God alone will be prized and adored and worshipped. And I think it's important to point out as we look at our own culture around us that uh, there's been um, a, real, a real confusion about justice and righteousness. That uh, it, It's important for us to remember that these are, again, divine attributes that can't be redefined as, and, they, and they can't be human supplied either, right? There, there are many people today that, including in those positions in leadership, unfortunately, that have no idea what righteousness and justice means, right? Social justice warriors re- redefine justice in order to suit their political agendas, their social agendas. And then we also have the cancel culture, right? And they're fueled by this misapprehension of what righteousness is. And ironically, both these groups think that, the, that they're taking the moral high ground. Right? That, that they somehow that they have the power to create this unattainable dream of this earthly utopia, this stable society that only God can, can do, that only God can grant. And in reality, th- their own brands of righteousness and justice are incredibly damaging. Right? They're not prosperous for people. But true righteousness and justice promote life human life and flourishing and godliness and they can only be found in God and what the scripture reveals about God and his will. And although we're removed from Judah all these millennia later, right, we still are shoulder to shoulder with them, right? We, we have the same hope. We anticipate this day when God's perfect righteousness and justice will, will finally fill the earth when Jesus, the King of Kings, comes and parades it through the streets. Amen? So as we wrap up this, this one portion of the text, this first point, it's important to ask ourselves some, some questions. Do you, do we have a history of God's grace in, your, in our lives? Right? Recalling God's past faithfulness can help us when we're in the midst of despair, when we're going through struggles, when we're facing the unknown. Maybe you're in a situation where you're dealing with a state of forgetfulness, forgetfulness of God. Maybe you're functioning in a way where you're Regarding, disregarding God, not regarding Him, or you have a, and because of that, you have a lack of joy, a lack of purpose, a lack of clear direction in your life. And that's true, then I encourage you this morning to reach out to God in prayer, read His Word, talk to the, the other saints in, in, in community. Remember His grace. Make yourself remember His grace in your life. We see that God is transcendent, but we also reading this passage, that he is imminent, that he is closely biased, that he's imminently concerned, right? With intimately concerned with, with what's going on in our lives from day to day. So the question is, do you, do you depend on his strength from day to day? Do you turn to him when you're facing difficulties? Or do you try to t- muscle through things on your own? Or m- and maybe you use escapism. And all honesty, that's, that's, that's my mode. Just escape it. Distract yourself with entertainment. So I, 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 would, I, I would just encourage all of us to think on these things, consider them, and, and then discuss them together in community group. That's, that's where this stuff can get played out. These ideas can get played out and we can help each other through this. So now we've seen 
we look through verses 1 through 6, how Judah has finally cried out to God for help, and I hope that we all are crying out to God for help day to day for His grace. But now Isaiah is going to, to lead, us, lead his people. Isaiah is going to lead his people through this lament over the present condition before God makes His mighty decree. So let's, let's take a look at those verses, 7 through 16. So hear the word of the Lord again. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There's no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff, you give birth to stubble, your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Hear you who are afar off, and you, what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid, trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with a consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously... And speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of the oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil, he will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. So here we, we get this glimpse of this, the wasteland that's left, that, it, that Assyria has left pretty much in their wake. Isaiah is telling them over and over again here, there's this constant reiteration of behold or look around, look and see. Survey the extent of what has all been done. First, all all the mighty warriors, all the mighty warriors of, of Judah are in the streets of Jerusalem wailing. The envoys or diplomats that tried to make these peace agreements with Sennacherib, with Assyria, are now just weeping because they failed. They failed to, to bring about the peace that they had longed for, but now they're seeing that war is inevitable, and these roads that are going to and from Jerusalem are now just empty because everyone's taking shelter in place because of the coming bloodshed that Assyria is bringing with them. No travelers, nobody's on route, no tourism. The Assyrians are, are breaking their covenants left and right. They're toppling cities all around. They're even destroying the beautiful and fruitful landscapes. That's, that's what's in view here with Lebanon, Sharon, Bashan, and Carmel. All of these were known, renowned for their, their beauty and their, uh, their landscapes and their, their fertile crops. But now they're just these barren desert wastelands. One phrase in all this sums up the, the motive behind all this devastation. There's no regard for man. There's this blatant disrespect for the value of human life. And really that's a symptom, right, of of a heart that's just opposed to God. Right? A hatred of God will manifest itself in a hatred of people who are made in God's image and likeness. Right? And all that's going on that Syria's doing, it all reminds me of what Alfred Pennywise says to Bruce Wayne in The Dark Knight. He's trying to help Bruce Wayne to understand and make sense of the Joker and, and why he's terrorizing Gotham City. And Alfred says that some, man, some men just, just, they just can't be bought with money or bullied or reasoned or negotiated with. He says some men just want to watch the world burn. 
try to put yourself in Judah's shoes here, right? Imagine that you're in Jerusalem and this military force is all around you that's causing all sorts of devastation in the land that God has promised to give you that would be plentiful. And now there's this camped army outside your capital city and they're essentially chanting, you're next. We're coming for you now. What can be more frightening than that, right? Well, actually, Isaiah shows us what can be more frightening than that. The only thing that's more terrifying than this advancing army is the sovereign work and decree of the Almighty God. Amen? So God has allowed Assyrians to advance this far to this point, but now he's going to intervene. He's heard the people's prayers. He's heard their pleas for grace and for strength and for deliverance. And now he's going to answer those prayers. And first he does something unusual. He just, he, first he just will reprimand Judah themselves, the ones who's crying out for help, because he's reminding them that they tried to save themselves. He tells them that all the strategies and efforts to save themselves from the enemies were futile. Right? They didn't work. And he actually uses this illustration of, of pregnancy, that you conceive chaff, you give birth to stubble, you, your breath is a fire that will consume you. In other words, all these attempts that you've made to defeat your enemies, all these diplomatic re, you know, attempts, they only blew up in your face. They didn't work out. But in God's mercy, he's going to also now assure them that even though that they have tried by their, their own efforts to defeat the enemies, he's going to step in and he's going to defeat the enemy for them. He says he's going to burn them in this fire of judgment until there's nothing left behind. But God isn't in there. He goes on to make this, this universal statement. He's, he said this is, this is not just meant for Judah to hear these words, but he wants everyone near and far, both Judah and the surrounding nations, including Syria, to hear this, this proclamation. It's a, he's making this call that to everyone and everywhere to acknowledge his might, his legitimacy, as a sovereign ruler who will providentially act in his world. He's, he's the one who is orchestrating history. They don't happen by chance, but by God's active role. All these events are unfolding in human history. And who knew better than all that, than, than Jerusalem, right? Than God's people. And yet, at the same time, they, knowing that, they still rebelled. They had forgotten their God, right? That he is not only almighty in the affairs of the world, but he's also a holy God. He reminds them of his, of his holiness, that he's this consuming fire that none can dwell with unless that person too is holy like he is holy. So this, this uh, announcement here of God being a consuming fire is, is not this uh, description of his, his fiery wrath, although that sometimes is the case when referring to the fire. We've just seen that at a couple of verses that, uh, uh, you know, up from here before, that it does refer to his burning indignation towards sin. But it's also this description that's used over and over in Scripture, this theme of, of, of fire as a uh, description of God's holiness. That he's separate from the world he's created and he's exalted, he's transcendent, he's morally pure, he's, he's all glorious, and none can dwell with his holiness as a holy God, an unholy people can't, can't dwell with them. But only those who reflect God's holiness can dwell with them. Look at verses 15 and 16 here. 
We get a description of what a person looks like. The person who can dwell safely with God without being burned up by His holiness. Isaiah gives us six characteristics. He says, one that walks righteously. That means someone who walks according to God's laws. One who speaks uprightly. One who, and, and that, what that means, the person who speaks biblical truth. God's truth. Doesn't lie. Uh, number three, God, one that dis- despises gain of oppressions. Doesn't extort money from people through violence or manipulation. Number four, one that shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe. Doesn't take bribes because he loves, this person loves people more than money. Number five, one that stops his ears from hearing bloodshed. In other words, does not perpetrate or plan violent acts. Number six, one that shuts his eyes from evil. This person shields his eyes from evil and perversion because they are repulsive to him. This is a person that God will defend, it says here. He will dwell in heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. He, this person will enjoy shelter and the provisions of being in the presence of the Almighty God. The problem is nobody fits his description, right? And throughout all of history, it's, this is not a surprise. I mean, Israel's known that. Throughout all of their history, God, though, has made this, these loving accommodations for his people so that he can, he can dwell with them, even though he is holy and they're not holy. He chose his temple and, and these holy places within his temple with these thick curtains as a place where his Shekinah glory would dwell and be shielded from his people. He gave him this law to live by. He gave him a sacrificial system where the blood of bulls and goats would be used temporarily to atone for sin. And these were ways that God used, used these different means and mechanisms to dwell with his people, while also at the same time shielding them from the full expression of his glory, of his, of his presence. And then Jesus came, right? The one person who did exude all of these six qualities that we just read. And from the eternity past, Jesus did dwell with God in heaven in perfect, in perfect harmony, perfect unity. And, and in accordance with the Father's plan, He left heaven. He came to earth. He walked righteously. And He proclaimed God's truth. He wasn't greedy or violent, but instead He willingly subjected Himself to violence, the violence of the cross, in order to pay the penalty of our sin. And then he rose from the dead, securing a place for us so that we can be in the blessed presence of God. He did all this in order to save us from our sins. So to purify us. So that one day we will no longer need to be shielded from God's presence, but we can be in his presence fully. For the believer, those, those blessings begin even now. right? When we trust Christ's atoning work, when we place our faith in what Christ has done in our behalf, Scripture says that we're justified, meaning that we are declared righteous before God. And at conversion, the Holy Spirit does take up residence in our hearts. The, the presence of God is already with us and in us. He's doing the work of that sanctifi- sanctification in us, purifying us, making us practically righteous. So even though we've been declared righteous, we're now being made practically righteous through the Spirit's power. And God plants within us this desire, this holy desire to be like Jesus. We don't live it out perfectly now, right? We, we, we make, but we do make progress through the Spirit's power in our hearts. But holiness is this lifelong process that will only be fully complete when Christ returns. 
And when he does, we won't have to fear being burned up by God's holiness any longer, right? We will no longer need this barrier like a temple curtain anymore that shields us from his presence. We won't need these animal sacrifices because Jesus' shed blood was the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins, right? We will finally one day see beyond that, that, that frosted glass window that we have in front of us, that, that glass darkly that we see through, because we'll finally be, be able to finally behold the beauty of Christ and enjoy all of the protection, the provision that He provides for His people that are with Him. Amen? So that, that's, that's just a perfect transition, right, to our last point here, where we look at the King's majestic beauty in verses 17 through 24. Let's read those as we close this chapter of Isaiah. Your eyes will behold the King in His beauty, you will see, they will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted where, where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold, Zion, the city of, your, of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Your cords hang loose. They, they cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil and abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick because, he, because the people who dwell there will be forgiven of their iniquities. So notice these repeated phrase over again. Your eyes again. Your eyes. Behold. Look. See. You used to draw Jews' attention to the arrival of this supremely beautiful king and the establishment of this king's new kingdom. And once again, Isaiah's doing this thing where he's, he's employing this prophecy that relates to both Judah's immediate reality, their present reality, and how he's going to deliver them, but also their future hope. When God will eternally shower this, this new Jerusalem, this new Zion with blessings. And the description he gives is just completely opposite of what we read earlier in, in verses 7 through 9, right? Replacing this, this wasteland that was all around them now is this, this fertile land that stretches, stretches as far as the eye can see. A land of their own that's free from the foreign entanglements and, and foreign enemies. In fact, they'll, they'll look back at these present days as nothing but a bad dream. Because the ones that oppress them won't, won't be here any longer. They'll be gone forever. It's like, you know how... When, when people get older, they look back at the, the glory days, their old days. You know, look at the old days and how, how wonderful things were. Why can't things be like they were back then? Well, this is the, kind of like the reverse of that. They'll be looking back at how horrible things were back then, and it will only bring a greater sweetness to the, the, the presence of being in the new king, under the new king's guidance and leadership and peace. It'll be much more sweeter because they'll look at what came before and how God brought them out of that to where they are now. And look at verse 18. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? This is a reference to Assyria and how these officials would come and they would, they would count the people of Judah 
on the other, the other side of this wall the best they could. They, they, would, they would weigh the gold and silver they extorted from King Hezekiah. They, they would count all these towers that were in the city and try to estimate what level of force is needed in order to occupy the city. All this strategy in order to decimate Jerusalem. But these will no longer be a threat. And the fear and this desperation that, Jew, that Jerusalem is experiencing will be replaced now with this peace and with joy. Nothing is going to tear down Jerusalem because it's now becoming an immovable, an immovable tent. What I think is a reference to the wilderness wanderings where they were having to constantly be moving. But not, even, not only that, but even Jerusalem itself, as it was during Isaiah's time, was, was movable because it could be shackled. It could be ramshackled by, uh, by these invading forces. But now, in the new Jerusalem, under the new kingship, it won't be. It'll be immovable. It'll be a permanent fixture. It'll be a permanent home for God's people. And some will interpret this, this eschatological as, uh, uh, aspect of this passage as depictions of the millennial reign of Christ. When he comes for that thousand years, well, he will come on earth and will be present for a thousand years and he will rule physically in peace in Jerusalem from that time period. And it'll be a time period of perfect peace until Jesus finally does release Satan from his chains and the final battle commences until Satan is defeated. Others in the all-millennial camp, like myself, believe that this is the prophecy is pointing more toward the glorified state when Christ does rule in the new heavens and new earth, in the new Jerusalem, when this, this final state of affairs, not, not, not leading up to it, but the final state of affairs, the final place. But either way you interpret it, right? both parties believe that this passage is centered around the great and glorious king. Right? He's at the center of this new place, of this new kingdom. Right? He's mentioned in chapter 32, but now he's taking, taking a center stage, and we're going to see it over and over again as we go through Isaiah, this king, this prophesied king. He'll be beautiful to behold. He'll be strong enough to secure his kingdom, both in land and sea. We've talked about the land, but also the sea. I was reading this passage here. That it'll be an impenetrable, impenetrable force that, that no one will be able to invade it by land or by sea. He has con- full control over the entire jurisdiction of this kingdom because he's a king unlike any king that came before. Not like any human king that's come before. And thankfully Isaiah doesn't leave us wondering who this king is going to be. He tells us. It says, Isaiah defines him as the Lord is our king. In the past, Israel has depended on all these other kings in the past to, to guide them, to direct them. And now he's, he's telling them to acknowledge the Lord, their warrior God, the Lord of hosts, as their king. He's the only one that can deliver them from these foreign threats, these invading threats. And the Lord now is not only just their king, but he's their judge. In the past, they, they depended on Moses and the, described, on the prescribed law of God. And now the Lord is their lawgiver. And this mighty judge, this lawgiver, this king, is going to be the one that's going to deliver them. And the Assyrians proved to be nothing but a defenseless, demolished hull, as we see here in the the last two verses here in verse 23. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mass firm in its place or keep the sail spread. Then prey and spoil and abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. 
this happened, an immediate answer to this prophecy, an immediate fulfillment of this prophecy happened when the invading Assyrian army was defeated, not by Israel, but by God himself. When they finally turned to God, he miraculously saved Judah from the Assyrian army, killing 185,000 men in one day. Not by any force that was used other than God's force, other than God's, God himself acting on Israel's behalf. And after that, after 180,000, they woke up one morning and saw 185,000 bodies laying around, they retreated. They retreated from Jerusalem. And then we also see that this is not only fulfillment of what happened with the Assyrian army, but with the Assyrian leadership as well. Sennacherib returned home, and while he was worshiping in his temple, his god, Nisroch, his two sons killed him. Now when you go back and look at the first two verses of this chapter, right? Makes a lot of, makes a lot of sense. Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. We have not only just the benefit of looking back, right, and seeing how God graciously intervened on Judah's behalf at that time in history, we also have the benefit of knowing the identity of the king, this almighty king and majestic king, is also Jesus Christ, right? He is not only uh, the, the divine king, he's also the human king. He's this, this, the, the God-man, the divine and human king. And he lived sinlessly, died on the cross first, and rose from the dead, triumphing over these powers of darkness. And, and God the Father seated him, as it says, at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. It means over all rulers of the earth. He is greater still. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Ephesians 1. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to be the church which is his body, the fullness of all who dwells and fills all in all. And although he rules today in heaven, that's true, and we should remember that when we're in the state of affairs that we're in now ourselves, when we see rulers who are not ruling in righteousness and justice, he is still over and above and still sovereignly in control, but he will finally one day come back for us. Right? He will finally establish Zion as a place for his people to dwell. People who have not just been saved from these external threats that we were reading about or that we are working through in our own lives, but also from the great enemy of sin, right? As we read in verse 24. The people who dwell there will be forgiven of their iniquities. There will be a healing of, in body and in soul, right? This, this holistic salvation is going to be determined when Christ returns, that no longer will anybody say, I am sick, because they will be healed fully, completely, forever. And no longer will there be weeping or sorrow or difficulties. There's no, no longer languish over what sin has caused or what sin is doing, because sin will be completely demolished. So the question is, this morning for all of us, is the king that's described in this chapter, is this your king? I would encourage you, if not, then humble yourself before him. Humble yourself before the King of Kings. And, and there you can find forgiveness, you can find restoration, you can find peace. The other question for us today, this morning, is also, have you forgotten the hope that we wait for? Thankfully, 
when we forget these future realities, it doesn't mean that they're any less real, right? Let's remember today to, t- to take time to regularly contemplate the beauty of Christ and the gospel. All these glimpses that we read about in, in, in Scripture that we'll be looking at through Isaiah, and even when we go beyond Isaiah, all these glimpses that we read about of living in this, this glorious presence of Christ will finally become a reality. We'll delight finally in our mighty and merciful King forever and ever. And so I pray this morning as we close now that this wonderful truth should hopefully serve to reaffirm our faith, to clarify our hope, but also to rekindle the joy that we have in our King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, thank you again for this, your word and what it teaches us and what it reminds us, Lord, we are sometimes a thick-headed people. We don't, we don't want to be remem- reminded and yet we need to be reminded of your grace and your need for grace and strength each and every day. Father, I just pray that you would help us to soak in the gospel, soak in the reality of the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, that his good news started when he was first announced in the garden, and that it came to fruition when you came in the flesh, Jesus, and you atoned for sin, and it will also be a joyous event when you return and you can consummate your kingdom and you will finally rule and reign, and we will humble ourselves in complete service to you, complete surrender to you, complete worship. Until that day, Lord, help us to continue to be faithful. Help us to read your word, to pray, to, to, um, to seek community where we can be, um, where we can continue to hear and be reminded from one another by the, by the Holy Spirit's leading that we belong to you and you are our king. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.